You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Our reading tonight is from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We do confess to you that we have minimized you in our heart and our mind uh, and our actions throughout this week. Uh, God, we pray. We confess that there are our hearts have been uh, far from you this week, perhaps that you would draw us close to you, that you would fix our hearts, that you would fix our mind, that you would fix our worship on the glory of our King Jesus. And we pray for all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. If I have not met you, which there are several of you that I think I have not met uh, tonight, that I I would just love to meet you. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been working through this gospel account, this gospel according to Luke. I was thinking about what Jesus is doing here in Luke 8, and just thinking about authority a lot. We've been thinking about authority over the last few weeks, and I was just thinking about, have you ever been in a situation where someone tells you what to do, but you don't know whether or not you should actually listen to that command or that uh, imperative given you to, because you actually don't know who they are? Like, who are you to tell me these things? That's why often uniforms 
can be so helpful. If someone just on the street, if you're just walking down Central and someone tells you just to sit down and put your hands behind your back, uh, you would likely say, no thanks, man. I'm just going to continue on walking. Unless you saw that this man uh, who tells you to sit down on the curb with your hands behind your back is a police officer. You better listen. Similarly, in the military, you can quickly identify rank by uniform, just by what's the uniform being, being worn, what's on the, on the chest or on the shoulders. Uh, you can quickly identify whether or not this order is for you and whether or not you have to obey it. And this is why the show uh, Undercover Boss was so popular for a couple, uh, maybe one or two seasons. It was like, who is this person uh, kind of working his way in from the top now to the bottom? But it, it was also why that show only lasted like a season or two. Uh, everybody kind of figured out the bit. If like a new guy shows up to work and he's followed by a camera crew, it, well, it seems pretty fishy after you've seen a season or two of that show. But authority is a good gift from God for human structures and relationships. But like any gift, authority can be manipulated. Authority can be abused. And when, but when the authority is a divine authority, when the authority is perfect and good, then authority is actually the best and most perfect gift to all of humanity. To live under a good king to live under a sinless and sacrificial authority is actually to live in paradise. We've been tracing Jesus' authority over the eight chapters of Luke, and we've seen his authority be further and further revealed each week. Last week, when even the winds and the waters obeyed Jesus, his disciples were dumbfounded. They were seemingly left without an answer to the question, who is this that even the winds and the waters obey him? Because the answer to that is God. Only God can command the winds and the waters. Well, tonight we're going to see Jesus's identity and his authority be revealed even further. This really is like a progressing episode by episode by episode uh, season of Undercover Boss, where the CEO of the company who, who has who like knows every bit of the company from top to bottom, has access to all the ins and outs uh, of the company that perhaps the hourly workers don't know about. And these people, as they're watching him and interacting with him, like, who is this guy? He knows everything about this company. Well, we're taking a big chunk tonight. I asked Michelle to read only to verse 39 in Luke 8, but we're also going to get to the woman with the ongoing bleeding and with Jairus' daughter as well. It's a big chunk. These Three vignettes could have pretty easily been three different sermons, but all of them are tied very closely together by words and by themes, uh, and I wanted us to see these as a bigger snapshot because I think that's what Luke wants us to see. After last week, seeing Jesus' authority over the chaos of creation to then bring salvation to his people, Jesus is going to use his authority, he's going to wield and bring his authority tonight to bring cleansing, over sal cleansing and salvation over three things. He's going to bring cleansing salvation over demons, he's going to bring cleansing salvation over disease, and he's going to bring cleansing salvation over death, over demons, over disease, and over death. So let's first think about what uh, Michelle just read to us in these verses in Luke 8 about these pigs. This is a weird story. In verses 22 through 25 last week, we saw Jesus' disciple, Jesus and his disciples crossing the lake, often called the Sea of Galilee, but like we thought about last week, more correctly named the Lake of Galilee. It's just a big lake. 
And they've now crossed from, from the northwest down to the southeast to these Gentile people. These are not Jewish people, not uh, observing the law. They are not expecting a Jewish Messiah. And once they get out of the boat, Jesus and his disciples, and they're walking into the land, the very first person who meets them, who Luke tells, Luke tells us, is a man who had demons. That for a long time he had lived naked, he had worn no clothes, and that he was completely isolated from the rest of his village. He had no home, but instead lived outside of the village where the people had buried their dead. The demons would seize him, and that uh, while the villagers, perhaps in the past, tried to bind him with chains and shackles, he would break these bonds, he would break these shackles with supernatural strength. And so all of this, Luke tells us, had driven him out into the desert, into the wilderness, away from the people. But the very first thing that he, under the influence of these demons, says to Jesus when he sees him is this, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So not only does this Gentile man recognize Jesus as the son of the Jewish most high God, but he knows his name. He also correctly identifies him with greater clarity than anyone else has in Israel, save for perhaps Zechariah in chapter 2 and John the Baptist in chapter 3. He is seeing this man, Jesus, very clearly. This is similar to what we saw in chapter 4, where we saw another demon-possessed man say to Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, A few weeks ago, when we were going through that passage in chapter 4, we kind of thought about how we can tend toward, with 21st century lenses, uh, just look back at a a pre-modern story like this with a bit of sneering sophistication, with a bit of snobbery, and understand what was really going on, some kind of a mental health episode or something. But we also thought about in that time, that, or in that sermon, that this is actually just a bit of snobbery. Like, they're very, they're clearly seeing these things to be what they are, and when Jesus speaks, things happen. This is not just a progressive um, move out of a mental health episode. When we read both of those, these passages in Luke 4, here in Luke 8, like any biblical passage about the demonic realm, our curiosity meters, though, they just like peek out at 11, don't they? So many questions come up for us whether we're not Christians and we're a bit skeptical of a story like this, whether we are Christians, and then lots of like systematic category questions come up, like who and what are demons? What does demon possession actually mean? Is it possible for demons to possess Christians? Have I ever been possessed by a demon? But since these aren't questions that Luke is asking or answering, I hesitate to camp out here and then like spend 20 minutes on unpacking our theology of demons. But quickly, here's what we can say. Demons are unseen spiritual beings who, in following their Lord of evil, the Lord who is often identified by many names in the Bible as Lucifer, as Satan, or the Satan, literally the accuser, Beelzebub, the prince of the power of the air, as Paul calls him in Ephesians 2, perhaps even figuratively and metaphorically as a dragon or the serpent, etc., etc., that them, these unseen spiritual beings following him, that before the creation of humanity, they all rebelled against the good wisdom and the provision of God. 
in a spiritually parallel rebellion to ours. As a spiritually parallel rebellion to humanities, the demonic realm seeks to live out its existence apart from the authority of God, outside of the authority of God, instead making up rules and norms for themselves as they go. And it's in that sense that the demonic realm, or as Paul regularly calls them, the powers, the powers can then influence humanity to live our lives outside of the good wisdom and the good provision of God, outside of his authority and trying to convince ourselves that we live under only our own, often in the age-old subtle influence of those old gods of money, sex, and power. And then even from time to time with more direct influence in what is called possession or demon or demonic ownership of a person. But like we said in chapter 4 a few months ago or a few weeks ago, and when we were thinking through Ephesians 6 several months ago, the reason Paul is writing about the powers, the reason he is writing about the authorities in Ephesians 6 at all is because he is worried, he's concerned that the powers will keep ordinary Christians from leading faithful lives. He's writing that we as Christians wouldn't be obsessed about the demonic realm, obsessed about the powers, but just aware of them. That there are powers out there, but that they are defeated powers, that they are subjected powers, that the powers do not actually deserve attention, they deserve avoidance. But at the moment in this man's life, the demonic realm actually does have power. Unavoidable, undeniable power. What's more, when Jesus asks the man or the demon's name, the man answers legion. This is the, the name that he gives. The legion is a Roman division of fighting men of about five to 6,000 men, a Roman legion. It'd be five to 6,000 soldiers. Now, we don't have to then think that there are literally five to 6,000 demons in this man, but Luke does tell us that there are many, many. And the point is that unlike Luke 4, now Jesus is overwhelmingly outnumbered. So perhaps if you're reading the Gospel of Luke for the very first time, you, you get to Luke 8, and you've got a framework of the spiritual world, and you've got a framework of the demonic realm, and you come to Luke 8, and you read this for the very first time, and you think, oh no, Jesus is vastly outnumbered. What's going to happen here? This is a bit of a real uh, moment of tension, of climax, perhaps. But in the response to Jesus, what is the response of the demons who are legion, who are overwhelmingly outnumbering Jesus? What's their response? Sniveling, begging. Verse 31, many, many demons are begging Jesus not to send them into the underworld. Instead, begging him, pleading with him to instead send them into this herd of pigs. Now remember, they're in Gentile country. A herd of pigs is absolutely not a thing in Judea or Galilee. Pigs are unclean animals. And so the unclean demons are begging Jesus to be sent to the unclean, which Jesus gives his permission to. He permits them. This, he's basically uh, putting off judgment. There will be a day of decisive judgment over wickedness and over the demonic. That day will come, but that day is actually not today. And so in just a wild scene, a crazy scene, the pig herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. I didn't put the picture back up here from last week, but if you were here with us last, last Sunday, I put up a picture of the, the sea or the Lake of Galilee, which is kind of surrounded by very steep cliffs on each side. I'm talking 
a huge herd of pigs just committing suicide over the cliffs and into the water. It should be noted that Jesus doesn't command the pigs to do this. He doesn't just wipe out some now poor pig farmer's herd. But this is kind of an inverse scapegoat scene, isn't it? If you remember the the scapegoat in Israel's history in the time of Leviticus, in the Old Testament, the, the sin and the uncleanness of the people would be loaded up on, would be just packed onto one goat, one spotless goat. And this goat would carry away the, the sins and the uncleanness of the people that the people might be clean. Here, the sin and the uncleanness of one man instead are loaded up on, into an entire herd of the unclean pigs that he might be clean. Here, more than in times past, the removal of evil is really costly. Really costly. This is a lot of pigs. And if, even if Jesus didn't command, it, command this, this is a costly, costly uh, cleansing that Jesus brings. So the herdsmen run all over the city and the country, and they tell the people what had happened. And so the mob comes out to find and see Jesus. And, and what do they find? They find the man who would likely have been like a local legend in their village. The formerly demon-possessed man who had broken chains and shackles. Everyone would have known who this person was. And how do they find him? Though he was formerly naked, now he's clothed. Though he was formerly like aimlessly and crazily moving around, now he's sitting and stationary. Though he formerly was directed by demons, now he's sitting at Jesus' feet. He is learning. Though he once was out of his mind, now he is in his right mind. And what is there? response to this? What is the response of the villagers? Well, it's the same as the disciples in the boat in the last scene. What was the response of the disciples when they saw Jesus calm the winds and the waves? They were afraid. In the end of verse 35 here, the villagers are afraid. So that in verse 36, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Now here, the word for healed is actually saved. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been saved, how Jesus had saved him, how Jesus had rescued him, had brought him from bondage to freedom, had brought him from death to life, had rescued him, had brought him salvation. So he is cleansing this man, and he is saving him simultaneously. And yet, what's the response of the people to Jesus' clear authority to save? Verse 37, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Fear here doesn't necessarily mean like they were like cowering and afraid. They were running away from Jesus because they were so afraid of him, like some great wizard or something. But more like we think about the phrase, the fear of the Lord, a deep and reverent respect, a right recognition that I, that, that we are not like him, and he is not like us. It very much likely was a question, a response like the disciples in the boat of, who is this man that he has done this, that he has brought this man, this local legend, this local legend, legend of mania and craziness into a place of stability? And yet while the fear had driven the disciples on the boat to deeper worship, that same fear in these Gentile villagers drove them to rejection of Jesus. They were okay with one of their own remaining in bondage, 
living naked and out of his mind. They were okay with the demonic, just kind of living on the outskirts of their villages, or of their village. Maybe now confronted with the reality of a great financial loss of their pigs. Perhaps now being confronted with real spiritual authority in their midst, now they fail the test. They say, no, we don't want this at all. They reject the gift. They want prosperity and full bellies of bacon and sausage instead of Jesus. They want human resources over divine power and authority. They reject him. Their reverence of him actually causes them to reject him. And yet Jesus is not willing to completely give up on these people who have initially rejected him. The formerly demon-possessed man is begging Jesus to come along with them, to get on the boat with them as they're now heading back to Capernaum. And he is begging Jesus. The, the very same word that the demons had done. The demons had begged Jesus to leave them alone. And now this man is begging not to leave him alone. Let him come with Jesus. And yet for Jesus, he does not have his people serve him in exactly the same way. Some will travel with Jesus. The majority will stay where they are to tell of what he has done. And so he tells the man to go back home and to, to declare in verse 39 how much God has done for you which he does. He goes back to the village, Luke tells us, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much, quote, how much Jesus had done for him. What God has done, Jesus has done. Just as we saw last week that Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the God of Israel, who is calming the waters, is actually what Jesus is doing. Or as Jesus would say in John 10, that I and the Father are one. Here, what God has done Jesus has done. And so in this opening vignette, this, the initial questions for us to consider, to reflect upon, is that when confronted with the authority, when confronted with the cleansing salvation of Jesus, do we draw near to him? Does his grace and his love and his power and his authority invite us to sit at his feet, to learn from him, to want to know him, to not be apart from him, to beg him to be with him? Or does his power and authority actually become a bit repugnant to us? Do we instead drive him away? Would we rather keep him along with real spiritual evil just at a manageable distance, perhaps on the marginal outskirts of our lives? so that we can stay in charge, so that we do not invite someone else who has real authority to now command our lives, convincing ourselves that no one gets to make demands of me, even if he has clearly shown the right and the authority to do so. But also a question for us is that if you ever question through the existential deep is God out there? What has God ever done for me? Kinds of questions of life. Why is it that he feels so absent and silent? We must answer that question. What has God ever done for me with another question? What has Jesus done for me? He has loved me. He has lived for me. He has died for me. He has been raised to new life for me. And he has been seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And in that sense, what more do we need? What more does God need to do for us? I didn't share a quote last week that I share near, nearly every Easter. But it's this, if, 
Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if he actually was not raised from the dead, then nothing else matters. There's actually not much meaning in this life. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, then nothing else matters. What have we to be anxious about? What have we to question God about? Or if the meaningless eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die is true, if all there is is this life, then we might as well get as much joy out of it as possible, then if that's not true, then it actually becomes meaningful to think and to reflect upon that we should eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. Jesus has brought in his resurrection to life now his own people, but more on that in a minute. And so it's to these themes that we now need to keep moving. If Jesus showed his cleansing salvation over demons to cleanse, to purify, and to save, now let's see his cleansing salvation over disease. In verse 40, we read that as Jesus returned, the crowds were already waiting on him. And one man in particular, Jairus, a wealthy and powerful man in town, a a ruler or a civic and religious leader of the synagogue, this man, a powerful man, he falls at Jesus' feet. Why? Because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. And so he implores Jesus to come to his house. But we'll come back to Jairus and his daughter in our third section. Now, since, since I didn't have Michelle read this section, I'm just going to read the next bit, beginning in the second half of verse 42 through 48. And Luke writes this, As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. All right, so the title that I've given to this second subheading isn't quite right. This woman certainly had a medical condition that in these, disease, or in these days had proven to be incurable. And even this perhaps funny little uh, clause that Luke, the physician, is saying that she had spent all her money on physicians. His profession couldn't help her. But yet while disease isn't quite the right word, she's got some sort of condition, it needed to be a D, you know, uh, demons, disease, and death. But either way, describing this condition, describing this situation that this woman finds herself is anything but funny. This would be a miserable and embarrassing situation for any woman in any age. But then even more in the first century, certainly in an age like this, well before modern hygiene products, meaning likely similar to the story of Rachel's made-up excuse of sitting on the household idols in Genesis 31, this this lady had likely just stayed at home, just staying seated at home, hidden from public embarrassment for 12 years. Not only that, But because of the presence of blood, she would have been ceremonially unclean. Now, we spent several weeks in Leviticus a year ago, last April, thinking through the difference between sinfulness and uncleanness, that there actually is a difference, that all sin is uncleanness, but not all uncleanness is sin. 
Uh, Being clean rather than unclean refers to to being in a condition where you are fit to approach God. You are fit for his presence. And you could become unclean for any number of reasons. So we thought about a nine-year-old boy who had perhaps spent all day outside playing in the dirt and the mud, and before he comes into the house, mom makes him get clean. She isn't saying that the son, the boy, is immoral, just that he is not yet fit to come inside. Let's clean you up. Let's do something about that first. And we thought about that blood being the life of a creature, when blood is outside of the bounds of the body, that this is uncleanness. Now, there is much, much more that we considered. But for now, just know that this means that this woman was not only socially isolated because of likely shame and embarrassment, but in these days, she was also not able to approach the temple. She is a woman of complete isolation. She is a woman very similar in that sense to the demon-possessed man in the last story. Isolated. Excluded from the community. And so, sneaking through the pressing crowds, she doesn't want to draw attention to herself. She may not feel herself worthy, in fact, to ask of anything of Jesus. She simply just wants to touch the very corner of his tunic, his, his robe. If she can just touch the very hem of it, and she does. Now, some people throughout the centuries have criticized this woman. They've criticized her that perhaps she's got some like superstitious belief that maybe she that we shouldn't necessarily consider to be all that dissimilar from like somebody who wants to just touch some magic rock or drink some magic water. It's just superstitious. But Jesus and Luke don't criticize her at all, but actually commend her. She is desperate. She believes that Jesus does, in fact, have the power to heal. And this word power is actually really important. After she touches his garment, he stops and says, who did that? No one owns it. And Peter says, master, like everybody is touching you. But he says, no, I felt the power go out from me. Power has been a huge theme throughout Luke so far. Over and over again, Jesus goes out, quote, in the power of the spirit or in the power of the Lord, preaching, teaching, healing. And here, the power of God The power of the Spirit has healed this woman immediately, and yet Jesus wants to know who did it. I don't know that it's necessarily true that he doesn't know who did it. I think he's pressing for an acknowledgement. He's pressing for a confession of faith. And this woman, like the villagers before, she's afraid. She's afraid. She's trembling likely for many number of outcomes that might be just in the minute to come. She doesn't know what's going to happen. What is Jesus going to do with her? Does he intend to expose her? Does he intend to humiliate her? Was he angry that since she, an unclean woman, had touched him, was he now angry because he had become unclean? Would he make her confess that she had actually and selfishly gone out and pressing through this huge crowd of people, touched many people, thereby making all of them unclean as well? So perhaps thinking that Jesus is angry with her, she tells the entire story to him, to the crowd, trembling. And yet what's Jesus' response? Anger? Annoyance? Disappointment? 
an attempt to humiliate, expose, or shame her. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. While she is likely older than him, he warmly speaks to her as a loving father, again, indicating his true new family who has come to him, that he's gathering around him. But our English translations, again, kind of blur this. Jesus literally says here, your faith has saved you. She's healed, yes, but he has brought her salvation. Her faith coming to him has brought salvation. Her belief in who Jesus is, which then translated into action of not being driven away from him, but coming closer to him, has brought her salvation. And because of the salvation that he brings to her, he says, now go in peace. He doesn't mean, lady, daughter, walk away with like a renewed sense of subjective well-being. Leave here with like a restored day of mental health. But he's saying this, go in peace in the sense that peace has been used throughout Luke. Objective, not subjective. As the angels sang in Luke 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Go in friendship. Go in nearness. Go in intimacy with God. Now unbroken by sin, unseparated by uncleanness, that as we've thought about so many times before in Leviticus and even earlier in Luke, and as we'll see in our third and final vignette, Jesus is actually not made unclean by the uncleanness of others. If we're reading this story for the very first time, and we know our Old Testament, and we see this woman who is unclean by her bleeding, approaching Jesus from in the crowd, we might be tempted to think, no, please, no, don't touch him. You will make this clean man now unclean, but that is not what happens. It is not so that those further away from the purity of God, they do not drag Jesus away from God but that the intense purity, that the cleanness of Jesus then finally and fully transforms those who were formerly unclean now to clean. That Jesus, who is one with the Father, actually drags those who are far from God into the inner courts of purity. Which now finally gets us to this final section. We've seen Jesus' cleansing salvation over demons, his cleansing salvation over disease, and now finally his cleansing salvation over death. Let me read this as well. Verse 49 while he was still speaking, again, speaking over this woman and this whole scene that has just happened, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Well, this entire scene with the woman who touched Jesus is happening. I'm sure that, that Jairus, this synagogue ruler, is like checking his watch. How long is this going to take? Does he not know that my daughter is dying? And then to his horror, one of his servants comes and whispers in his ear, never mind, you don't have to bring him here. 
She's died. But Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. But again, here literally, she, Jesus says, she will be saved. He says, I will save her. We've already seen Jesus raise someone from the dead in Luke. Back, to, back in chapter 7, Jesus raised the only son of a widow back from the dead, which caused the village to respond that a new prophet had arisen, that what we have here is a new Elisha, a new Elijah. And in a very similar scene to that one, here, Jesus tells the mourners not to cry. Do not weep, which again, just like in Luke 7, if he was not capable of doing what he is about to do, is the most insensitive and terrible thing that he could say. But for him, to raise her from the dead was as easy as waking a child. And of course, the crowds laughed at him. They are not dumb ancient, ancients just like walking around expecting the gods to do something miraculous all the time. They understand death better and more intimately than we do because they were far more acquainted with death than we are. They laughed at Jesus. They know when someone is dead. But sure enough, the little girl hears the wake-up voice of Jesus, and she opens her eyes as if a father had just woken his daughter. She stands up, and she gets something to eat. What I miss! And all of these miracles, just like Jesus said he would do when he announced in Luke 4 that the power of the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and that he would push back on the effects of the curse and new creation, all of these miracles all of these three miracles that we have seen here today are just signs. They are pointers to the deeper reality of what Jesus has come to actually do, to bring salvation, to save, to bring peace, to bring cleansing. Here's how we wrapped up our time in Leviticus. That leprosy, that demons, that discharges of blood, that death do not bring uncleanness to Jesus, but he rebukes them. He sends away the sad. He makes them all come untrue. He takes chaos and he brings it to order. He takes sickness and he brings it to health. He, bring, he takes death and he brings it to life so that all around him are asking, who is this man? They're afraid. They're brought to deep reverence. This man is not like us. This man these Jewish folks, anyway, are seeing someone who is doing what Moses could not do, what Aaron could not do, what the entire law could not do. Jesus Christ, our great high priest and sacrificial lamb, is bringing the excluded people into the people of God. He is bringing the excluded into the presence of God, that he might, by the blood of his power, that he might wash, that he might cleanse, that he might sanctify his people for God's presence forever, not consuming them by his holiness, but transforming them, transforming them by his holiness as their mediating priest of God's light and life. So unlike Israel, who at the moment in history when the law was given in the wilderness, the time of Leviticus, they were a people who had been consecrated to the Lord. They were in kind of a, a default state of cleanness that would go back to uncleanness, but then come back to their default state of cleanness. We, apart from Christ, we are a people of default uncleanness. We are unfit for God's presence. We, apart from Christ, have rejected Him. We have worshipped ourselves. We have loved the sphere of darkness and of death rather than his sphere of light and life, and we must become clean. 
This has not changed with the coming of Christ. Unclean people must become clean. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John sees a vision of the city of God, and he says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The ceremonial categories of uncleanness were all along pointing and preparing for moral categories of defilement. Those who are morally defiled cannot dwell with God, which is all of us. There is none who are righteous. No, not one. None of us. And yet Jesus is sent away on our behalf. He is the scapegoat. He is the pigs. As Hebrews 13, 12 tells us, he is taken outside of the city. He is taken outside of the village. He is taken outside of Jerusalem, the Mount of Zion, and he suffers and he dies for the unclean. He suffers and he dies for the sinful. He suffers and dies as the clean one, as the holy one, that he might make them clean, which is the entire point of the whole book of Hebrews. When the writer says this in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, he says, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, those who are united to Jesus, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, washed from an evil conscience, and our bodies cleansed, washed with pure water. He will make us clean, and holy, or as we sang earlier, be of sin the double cure, Lord Jesus. In your work, come and do something with our sin of double cure. Save from wrath, save us, and make us pure. Cleanse us, save and cleanse. But we must come to him and through him. Without him, we are without hope. You're excluded from the presence of God for eternity. And unlike the people who, in the time of Leviticus and of the Old Testament, who were temporarily excluded outside of the camp because of physical uncleanness, without Christ, we are excluded forever in our moral uncleanness, forever in eternal shame, in exclusion, in punishment, and in of death. Look, like, I, don't, I don't know the reasons that you might feel excluded tonight. Objectively, subjectively. You might feel excluded because of spiritual darkness or oppression, like the first man. Jesus has the authority to send that right away. Be gone. There is no sin. There is no history. There is no darkness too dark. The grace and the love of Christ will stretch deeper and further to save, to grab, to wash, to cleanse. There is no sin that the grace and the love of Christ cannot rescue you from. Perhaps you feel excluded because of sickness or disease. Perhaps because of injury or just physical exhaustion. Maybe you feel excluded because of the sin of others against your body. Maybe any or all of those have caused you to think more about just living life on the margins, 
It's just easier out there. That there is shame and that there is a lack of belonging, of inclusion. Jesus has the authority to cleanse and transform all of that. To transform whatever you bring to him. To save you, to bring you peace, not just subjectively felt, but actually, objectively experienced. Or maybe you feel excluded from God because of your sin that is bringing about your eventual death. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our lives of living for ourselves, of worshiping ourselves, of rejecting the good authority and wisdom of God is earning nothing but death. But God does not leave us there. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus has the authority. At this point in his ministry, he is a bit like the undercover boss, who's not being too subtle these days, but yet not wearing the uniform. He will be robed in glory in his resurrection and his ascension. And we, just like we sang earlier, come to him with nothing, naked, to the fountain we come. Wash me, Savior, or I die. What has God done for you? Well, what has Jesus done for you? He will cleanse you. He will save you from the inside out in this moment and to eternity. He will do it. He is faithful to do it. Might we continually draw near to him and come to him begging to sit at his feet from now into all of our days. Let's pray that he would help us in this. God, we come to you an eternal, glorious God, the Father who reigns and rules in wisdom. Who can understand your counsel? Who can understand your wisdom? None of us. And yet you have revealed the wisdom of God. You have revealed yourself to us in the person and the work of Jesus. And so, Jesus, we come to you with nothing but weakness, with nothing but uncleanness, with nothing but often humiliation and shame, and yet we come to you begging you to save us. We come to you because we know that you have the power. We know that you have the authority to do exactly what you say you can do. And so perhaps for some of us tonight, for the very first time, we pray that you would cleanse. We pray that you would save. We pray that for the rest of us who have come to you in the past, we pray that we would keep coming to you over and over and over for more grace, grace upon grace upon grace. Not that you would save us again, but that you would be of sin the double cure, that you would save and make us pure, that you would continue to transform us from one degree of glory to the next, that we might experience more and greater joy as we live in obedience to you, as we live in uh, greater death to ourselves and more life in Christ. We pray that you would do this together for us as we live less and less for our own individual lives and more and more for the good of each other, more and more for the good of our neighbor, more and more for the glory of Christ in our lives and in our homes and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods, in our city and in the entire world. God, we pray that you would fill this world more and more with your glory. We thank you for what you've done in the work of Jesus. We pray for all these things in his powerful, authoritative, cleansing and saving name. Amen. 
hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.